Well, Lord, I just am always moved by uh, Amazing Grace. What a wonderful hymn that, that's been written. Lord, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing your praise. Lord, and that's not because um, we just can't see it all. It's because your praise is so magnificent, so huge. It would take us an eternity to exhaust it. And so thank you for calling us to that future, to that hope to that glorious vision of singing your praise throughout the rest of time and beyond. Uh, Lord, we thank you for getting us a taste of that this morning as we gather to worship you, to thank you, to praise you, to be amazed at who you are. And thank you for opening that opportunity to us through your word. Uh, Father, we wanna pray for Bob Burris, a previous pastor at this church who's uh, today in Uganda on a missions trip. Father, we pray that you're with Bob in his preparations for teaching pastors uh, how to uh, read and understand the scripture there. Uh, Lord, would you bless him as he blesses them? And I pray that, um, that both the teacher and the students would be amazed as they complete the course, as they go through the, the lessons, as they study your word. Lord, I pray that your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, would have its effect in that class and in those people. Father, um, use Bob for your purposes, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray also for Palmdale Reformed Baptist, or um, um, sorry, Grace Reformed Baptist in Palmdale. And I pray for um, Pastor Barcellus this morning as he's preaching. Lord, I pray that you would have spoken to his heart, that your, your word would have touched him uh, deeply. And, and, and Lord, that you would use... Um, uh, Rich's uh, study of your word, the, his time in your word, to bless the congregation as he preaches. Lord, would you bless that congregation, increase them, draw many people to yourself through their ministry, and uh, Lord, uh, give them success. Father, we pray for um, a permanent place for them to meet as they're uh, still bouncing around in, in uh, hotel uh, ballrooms. Lord, uh, would you give them the, the opportunity, open a chance for them to get a, a permanent facility that they could worship in. And Lord, we pray that you'd be with us, Lord, that your word would have its effect in us too. Uh, we need to hear, we need to understand. Lord, I need to be moved uh, by your word and I need us to, to be moved as well. So Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. Um, do what you do through the power of your word in the hearts and minds of your people, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So in Acts, um, this, this one sermon was kind of easy to write, but it was also kind of hard to write because it's the second half. So it kind of wrote itself last week, but to pick it up this week, I, I really wish we could have pushed both of the sermons together, but it, there's just so much in each, we're going to have to break them up. So last week, what we saw was Philip went to Samaria and he preached the gospel there. And a man named Simon the Great, Simon Magnus, believed and was baptized and then was condemned to hell pretty much because he wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, you can't do that. And so last week we said that was a discipleship failure. And there were some real warnings for us there on what to watch out for. Well, Luke fortunately doesn't leave us with that. And just, you know, here's the bad news. He follows up immediately with this other story of what Philip did with a discipleship success. This is, a, is, this is a, an opportunity where we see somebody actually succeed at the, at the um, becoming a disciple of Christ. And so he doesn't want us to be left with the bummer. He wants to encourage us as well. So that's what Luke is doing. Um, and remember, uh, the, the theme of the book of Acts is Jesus' disciple now making disciples. And we saw Stephen a few weeks ago. We said, was he a successful disciple? Boy, was he ever. 
And he wasn't one of the people who was with Jesus originally. He was converted and he was brought up in the faith through the disciples of Jesus. And now we're seeing the same thing with Philip, a similar kind of thing. So uh, the way that the section, the, the chapter is going to break out, or this piece of the chapter anyway, is this discipleship success. We're going to meet the eunuch. We're going to look at the scriptures. And then finally, we'll see the disciple. And that, that's kind of the movement of how Luke has written this. Um, so uh, let's, let's go ahead and take a look. Um, Rich read it for us this morning. Uh, just a quick introduction. Philip, when we talk about Philip here, there was a, an apostle named Philip. Uh, that's not who this is. This is one of the seven de deacons from, um, from a couple chapters ago um, who has now become a, a disciple. He's a, a deacon. He's appointed in the church. Persecution broke out, so he fled to Samaria. And, and that's who he is. As a matter of fact, we're going to hear more about him later in the book of Acts. But for right now, that's, that's what's happened. Um, and the way this starts is, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, so God intended for Philip to have a mission. He gave him a purpose, and so he sent an angel from heaven to tell Philip, go and do this thing. Um, does God always work that way? Again, remember Acts, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Um, this is describing what happened with Philip. I can't prescribe to us that you, have, you can only go do something when an angel comes and tells you. Um, there are plenty of op opportunities in here where we don't have angels telling people to go what, what to do. They just go and do it, especially when it comes to sharing the good news about Jesus. You don't have to have an angel show up at your door and say, now go talk to your neighbor. You know that's a good idea. Um, Philip didn't have an angel tell him to go do it in Samaria. He went and did it in Samaria. And so there's something unique here. There's something, something magnificent that happens because God sent an angel to him. Uh, so he goes and he tells Philip to go to the specific road. Now, I don't know if you remember last week, it ended, the, the section last week ended, uh, they testified and spoke the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages. And I said, who was they? And immediately you got to think, well, it's, it's uh, Peter and John, because they're the ones who came to Samaria to share. But I think it might include um, um, Philip as well, because of what happens here. Now, it could be that he's still in Samaria, and that the angel appeared to him there and said, now drive past Jerusalem and go out there. But I have a feeling he might have been in, in Jerusalem himself. So um, can you put up that first map? Just a refresher of where we're at. So again, um, Philip was in Jerusalem. He went up to Samaria and he preached to uh, the Samaritans and they became believers. And now what happened is God has told him through that angel to go to a road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. So somewhere in this area is where he's at. So just, just some geography so we understand what, where the movement is. That's why I kind of think he went back to Jerusalem with the apostles, is because he's already there um, and he would send him. So if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I'm, I'm willing to admit I could be wrong. I, I, I thought I was wrong once, but I wasn't. So, um, so it could happen again. So, um, so that's, that's what I'm thinking, is that he was there and he was sent. So what happens is uh, the... the um, the angel says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And it, he mentions that it is a desert place. Um, we're familiar with de desert places, aren't we? So this is, this is out in the southern desert of uh, Israel. And he arose and went. And what happened was he comes across an Ethiopian, a eunuch of a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So let's meet who this guy is. Um, first of all, he is mentioned as an Ethiopian. 
And so most of us, if you're familiar with the geography of, or the, uh, the, the, yeah, the geography of Africa, you know there's a country right there called Ethiopia. But when this was written, that country didn't exist. Ethiopia was a much larger area. So put up the next, uh, the next map, please. Um, you see how it's a little bit lighter right there? So Egypt is here, modern Sudan and southern Sudan. And here's Ethiopia that we think of. This little piece over here is Eritrea and then Somalia. So those might be familiar names. When we think Ethiopia, you're not thinking of just that. It's actually this whole big area. It was essentially the, the Ethiopian empire was basically south of, of um, Egypt. So the northern Nile was Egypt. The southern Nile included Lake Victoria, which would be right in the middle of Ethiopia. Um, it, it included all of that. That was, oh, no, it's not in Ethiopia. I'm sorry. Uh, Lake Victoria is farther south. Um, geographical heresy, I repent. Um, but this was what we refer to as uh, the empire of Ethiopia. And so I was talking about this this morning. We, we tend to think of Africa as um, about roughly the size of America sometimes because it looks like America with its maps knocked up, you know, like different states and stuff. Just to give you a perspective on how big the Ethiopian empire is, go to the next slide. That's if we overlaid America. That's pretty close to accurate. Do you get an idea how big the Ethiopian empire was? It was huge. And now, to be fair, about the northern half of Sudan is all desert. So it's not like it was lush and green. But in modern Ethiopia, that was a very prosperous and rich area. So when we talk about this Ethiopian eunuch, this man from Ethiopia, this was a large, prosperous kingdom that he was part of. And what we're told is he's an official, and he's, his, his official office is he's the treasurer. This man has a lot of money under his control. He's a very rich person. Now, one of the things is it says that he was, um, he was the treasurer for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. The name Candace is kind of like when we say Caesar or Pharaoh. It didn't refer to necessarily one specific person, but it was kind of the office, that the role of queen of Ethiopia was referred to as Candace. So this is who this man is. And he is coming down from uh, Ethiopia. He's traveling to Jerusalem. He's been there, and now he's heading back. Uh, he's, he is referred to in the text one time as an Ethiopian, only once, but four times as a eunuch. So I think what Luke is drawing our attention to and referring to him that way is not necessarily his, his nationality, though that's important. But there's something else that's going on there. He's addressing his position within society. Um, eunuch became kind of synonymous with an official, like a, um, a chamberlain or somebody in the courts. But it also meant somebody who had been emasculated. I mean, it, it was a, a physical castration as well. The reason was because the king didn't want anybody competing for the throne. So if you're going to be in the royal household, you're not going to be able to compete that way. So this man is, is most likely actually a castrated individual. Um, that's how he could become so rich and so powerful is, is because that put him in a special category. Now, eunuchs in that time period were not well thought of. They were kind of looked down upon a little bit. Even a man in this kind of position and this kind of authority would be kind of looked at as you know, a little odd, a little strange. So that's where Luke focuses. But you can't miss the fact that he's an Ethiopian. He is from the south part of Egypt, from just below Egypt. He is a black African. He's not 
olive colored like the, um, like the Egyptians. Uh, that's why in Jeremiah 13, 23, it says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? So this man stands out as very different in this culture for a couple of reasons. First of all, because he's extremely wealthy, and we'll see that as we go through. Second of all, because he's a black man. And then third, because he is this eunuch. And so this marks him as a unique person. So what happens is the angel tells Philip, go down to this road and hang out. Go, go by this road. And then the spirit comes and says, go catch up to that chariot. Now, when you think of chariot, I think of uh, Burt Lancaster or you know somebody standing in a one-man chariot driving horses and, and whipping stuff. When we think of chariot in this sense, you've got to think more of like a carriage. He's, he's in a larger carriage because the Ethiopian is sitting down and he invites Philip to join him. So this is a bigger mode of transportation than a rich person. Everybody else is on feet. They're, they're walking. But the eunuch is in the carriage being attended by all these other people. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit now speaks. So who has God sent so far to get Philip to talk to this man? Sent an angel, and now the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip and says, go and join the chariot. That word join is way too weak. It, it doesn't really convey what's going on. The Spirit tells Philip, you go up to that chariot, and then the word for join is glue to or bind to. So he's telling him, I want you to go up to that chariot, and I want you to stick with that chariot no matter what. Just go and hang out with him. So it's a really strong command to go and do this. So Philip ran to him, and as he runs up, he hears him reading. And, and when he's run alongside the chariot long enough, he hears what he's reading, and he recognizes, oh, that's the book of Isaiah. Um, when people read back then, they most often read out loud. Uh, there, there was, I, I read a, an interesting portion of a book by Mary Carruthers called The Book of Memory, A Study of Memory in Medieval Culture. And what she said is that commonly scholars think nobody read silently back then. Um, it was very odd that people did that. Carruthers said that's not necessarily true. There was two different modes of reading. So you would read meditatively, you'd read quietly to yourself. But most often you would read as a, um, like a lecture, and so you'd read out loud. So she, she says there's a subtle difference here, and it wasn't quite as odd as we tend to think it was. But still, St. Augustine in his confessions in the fourth century commented that, um, that St. Ambrose read, out, read silently. And he kind of mentions it not just as this was his discipline, but he kind of points it out as it feels a little weird that he did that. Because Augustine said he would go to uh, Ambrose and he wanted to ask him a question. And Ambrose was sitting there reading a scripture and he didn't want to interrupt him. <laughs> so he's like, this is odd because normally he would be reading it out loud and you could kind of interact with him. So it's not totally uncommon that the Ethiopian eunuch would be riding along and reading the scriptures out loud. That, that's not odd. It's kind of what happened. So he's reading and Philip hears him reading and asks, do you understand what you're reading? That's a fair question. Do you understand what you're reading? And a man in this kind of power, with this kind of authority, this kind of money, you figure he'd look at him and go, yeah, who are you? Stranger in the desert who just ran up to my carriage. 
What's it to you? You know, but he's not. He's he, there's something about this Ethiopian, this this eunuch that really draws your attention because when Philip, this stranger who appears out of the desert, asks him, "Do you understand what you're reading?" His response is extremely honest. He says, "How can I unless someone guides me?" I'm reading the book of Isaiah and I'm not getting it. I find it fascinating, but I don't quite understand what's going on. Second thing to notice here is he's got a copy of Isaiah. It wasn't common that people would run around with scrolls that they owned of the scriptures. You would go to the synagogue and they would have it there and you would join on a, on a Sabbath and you would read it together. But for this Ethiopian to be traveling from Jerusalem, heading back to Ethiopia, reading his own copy of the scriptures, that not only talks to his wealth, it talks to something about this man. I mean, we own, how many, how many Bibles do you own? I mean, we've all got at least one. And if you've got a smartphone, you've got them all. Because you can get them all online. We're used to, in our day and age, just being swamped by Scripture. That's a blessing. Don't, don't take that for granted. That's a huge blessing. But before, about um, the invention of the printing press, it wasn't very common for people to have their own copy of the Scriptures. It was even more rare back then because every single copy had to be hand done. And you had to pr provide the papyrus or the paper or whatever it was it was going to be written on. And you had to hire somebody to sit and scratch it out for you or you had to buy one from somebody. So it was extremely rare. This guy has a copy of Isaiah. Not only has he got a copy of Isaiah, he's able to read it. And I'm, I'm guessing, I'm almost sure that he's reading the Greek version, and we'll see why in a minute. So he's educated, he knows Greek, he can read Greek, he's reading through the book of Isaiah, and he says, I don't get it. So he invites Philip, <laughs> stranger in the desert, come on up and sit down, tell me what this means. And he says, this is the passage of scripture that he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? His life was taken away from the earth. So he's reading what is probably the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Um, it's not an exact quote. The, the quote that's here is not an exact quote from the Septuagint, and it's not an exact quote from the Hebrew Scriptures, but it leans more heavily toward the, the Greek. So that's probably what he's doing, is he's reading that. And the question is, and, and this is a question that you should ask the scriptures when you're reading it, is who is this about? So as the Ethiopian is reading about this, this man in, in Isaiah chapter 53, he's like, I don't understand who this is. Is this somebody I'm looking for? Is it somebody who's already come? Is it more generalized than that? How do I interpret that? And so when he reads it, the, the eunuch asks Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? That's a fair, that's a really good question. When you read the scriptures and you read something like that, you go, who is this talking about? Now, back in the day, back then, there was some debate whether this suffering servant was the Messiah or whether it was Israel itself. And so for a long time, Jews interpreted this as, as this was probably talking about Isaiah himself. That's who this was about. Was, this was Isaiah explaining his experience, second person. So he says he, but he's actually talking about himself. That's not really the best way to approach it. There is a lot in that chapter that just doesn't fit Isaiah at all. 
It just you, you can't put it on Isaiah. And so you've got to kind of wrestle with it. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 is a powerful chapter. It is, as Christians, we look at it and we go, that is just Jesus all over it. But it can be a problem chapter as well. There's a video out called The Forbidden Chapter in the Tanakh. Um, it's about a guy goes on the streets of Israel and he says, did you know that there's a chapter we're not allowed to read in the Bible? And Orthodox Jews, like they got the yarmulke on, are saying, no, what, which one is that? And he opens up and he shows them Isaiah 53 and he says, read that, what's that say? And so he's talking to a, a bunch of different people and they're just blown away because they don't hear that. And so I was like, well, why would they not know that? That's in their Bible. It'd be like come, somebody coming to you and say, did you know John chapter one says? <laughs> Duh, yeah. So um, my nephew-in-law, is that how you say it, nephew-in-law? Um, he, he works for this, this ministry called One for Israel. He's Jewish, but he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And so uh, Etan explains it this way. He said, in the 17th century, there was a Jewish historian named Raphael Levi who said that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in the synagogues, but it caused, quote, arguments and great confusion. So they decided to take it out. Today, when they read the prophets in the synagogue, they read Isaiah 52, they stop halfway through the chapter. The next week when you come back, they start on Isaiah 54. The rabbis took out Isaiah 53 because it caused, quote, arguments and great confusion. But we have biblical evidence that it causes confusion. Our Ethiopian eunuch can't figure out what it's about. So it's, it's interesting how they approach it. Some Jews today read it and say that's talking about Israel. And I watched a video from a young man trying to explain why this is, is speaking of Israel, and he's inter engaging with somebody who opposed him, probably a Christian apologist, and saying, well, how about this and how about this? And he kind of spun some things and said them this way, but he says it very authoritatively, and so it sounds very good. Um, but he's, they, they claim that that's talking about Israel, bearing the burden for their own sins, going into exile, that kind of thing. It just doesn't work. And the Ethiopian knew that that was a problem. He looked at it and he said, it sounds like too much for it to be Isaiah. It must be speaking to somebody else, but who else? Well, what it's speaking of is the suffering servant. And, and the way we would understand that is that speaking perfectly clearly about Jesus Christ. Listen to some of the other things that it says in Isaiah 53. In verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced. When Jesus resurrected, when he came to Thomas and Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I probe his hands in his side, Jesus said, here, probe. I was pierced for your sins. My hands and my feet have holes in them. My side has got a spear hole in it. Come and probe. He was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 12 says, therefore, I will divide, oh, I'm sorry, verse 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Remember the end of Luke? What happened? Joseph of Arimathea comes and he says, it's not right that a man would be dead on the cross. We don't have any place to, to bury him. I'm going to take him off and I'm going to bury him in my grave. A rich man buried him among rich men because poor people got dumped in a, in a communal pit and, and covered over in dirt. He was with the rich in his death. And then verse 12, this one blows my mind because it, it just is so clear about the resurrection. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. You catch that? 
He's going to divide the spoil. He's with the strong. Why? Because he poured his soul out until he was sick, until he was dead. You don't divide spoil with dead people. So this really, in Isaiah, right there in Isaiah 53, speaks very clearly of the resurrection. He died, and then he rose because now he's receiving his reward. So when, when you read that, when you read Isaiah 53, it just screams Jesus Christ. And that's what that, that um, video did, was as the man talked through these things, and he, he shared with these, and it, by the way, it's all in Hebrew, so fortunately there's subtitles. Um, as he's sharing with them, these folks are looking at him going, Wow. And he says, now who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? He was born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. He, he, was, he was around before the temple was destroyed. He was pierced. He was rejected by our people. Who does that sound like? And of course, these are edited, so you only get the people who respond positively. But one guy is just like, he just kind of has this shell-shocked look. He says, sounds like Yeshua, Jesus. And he says, you know, when, when we get to the point where we start talking about Jesus, people get really angry. We're not allowed to look at those things. But he's just looking at the scripture as Isaiah 53 paints it, and he says, that's pointing to Jesus. That's got to be him. So how does Philip handle it? Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I can't think of a better Old Testament scripture to start with. I would love to do that. Have somebody reading Isaiah 53 and say, could you explain this to me? I don't get it. I, would, I couldn't pick a better place. This is awesome. Yes, let me tell you all about Jesus. So that's what he does is he starts with that scripture, but he didn't just stay with that because it's not just Isaiah 53 that's about Jesus. If you ask Jesus, the whole Old Testament is about him. So Philip starts there and just keeps unpacking and unpacking and unpacking and unpacking. And out of Egypt, I called my son, and that was exactly what happened to Jesus when he was a little boy. He was chasing. Remember when Herod did that horrible thing? Yeah, Jesus went to Egypt, and then God called him back out. And he could just keep going and going and going. So the scripture itself just sings the gospel. And Philip just steps up and says, Yep, that's what we're going to do. Notice the Holy Spirit didn't tell him, Philip, I want you to go to this, this uh, chariot, sit down and talk with this man, and here's exactly what I want him to tell you, you to tell him. Philip knew. Philip knew exactly what to say. He, he was an experienced evangelist. He had already preached to somebody else, so he knew exactly what to do. But it's possible to preach the gospel and to miss the heart of the individual. And, and that's where it's important that Luke tells us four times this man was a eunuch. He tells us the man went to Jerusalem to worship. The problem is eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple. Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple. So immediately they would look at this man and go, I can tell this is not a Jew. You can come into the court of the Gentiles. But also when they recognized that he was a eunuch, they'd say, you're not allowed. So he goes to worship, and he feels the exclusion. Why is that? Is it just being mean? Um, actually not, because in Deuteronomy, it talks about the fact that the eunuch will not join the assembly. Any, any man whose head is genitals crushed or modified or, or harmed in any way other than circumcision is excluded. And so this man has a heart to worship God and is, is put at a distance. He's kept away. So when Philip begins with Isaiah 53 and starts preaching to this man and telling him the truth, it doesn't say it, but I just can't help but imagine that they got to Isaiah 56. 
Because in Isaiah 56, there's something very important that's said. Listen to this. This is verses 3 through 5. Isaiah says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you think of any better news for that eunuch to hear than I've just experienced exclusion from the temple and God tells me my name is going to be in that temple. I've just ex experienced this life where I can never have children and God says, I'm going to give you something better than children. I'm going to give you an everlasting name. I just can't think of a better message for that eunuch to hear than the gospel, the gospel of Isaiah. Let's call it that. That's what he heard. That's what, we, what Philip has gone through with him is the message from Isaiah. And so what's the result? Well, the result is we get a disciple out of this. Listen what happened. And as they were going along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. That's, the, that's what happens when the man hears this good news, this, this huge promise that even a eunuch will not be excluded. As he says, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip doesn't say, well, we have a 12-week program that you have to go through to check you out before you're baptized. And you have to answer these tests. And, and have you memorized the catechism? Philip says, let's go get wet. Heads right down in the water and dunks him. Baptism is the first step for a disciple. Faith is what brings you to Jesus Christ, but the first act in becoming a disciple is you get baptized. That's why it says on our wall out there, go, make disciples. Okay, how do you make disciples? You baptize them, and you teach them to obey. That's how you make disciples. So the, 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 the um, Ethiopian eunuch has said, I want to be a disciple of this Jesus. I want what he's promising me. I want what he's offering so when he says, what prevents me from being baptized? It's a curious way to ask that question, doesn't he? He could have just said, look, there's water. Let's go get baptized. But he asked, what prevents me? Well, what prevented him from becoming a member of Israel was Deuteronomy 23. So you will not join the assembly, or as the King James puts it, the congregation of Israel. But the church says, that's not how we work. We're not excluding people. If you've put your hope in Jesus Christ, the gospel is for you. You're a eunuch, but listen to what Isaiah told us. Of course you're welcome. So when he says, what prevents me? He, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, there's no reason I can't be, become part of this community. And that's what Philip does. Is he rushes down into the water and he baptizes them. Baptism is a mark of becoming part of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, there's the spiritual baptism, but it's pictured, it's, it's, it's with water baptism. So some churches that have more than just, you know, like a warehouse, have a baptismal or some water out in front. When you come into the church, you're reminded of your baptism, or you might do a baptism out in front because that's the entrance to the church. So what the Ethiopian has just said, what the eunuch has just said is, I am now baptized into Christ, I am now part of his church. I've been welcomed in. Where the Jews excluded me, the church welcomes me. 
It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And what's his response? It says, And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. The, the, the idea that the Spirit carried Philip away, the word has behind it the sense of steal, stealing. He snatched him away. He, he stole him from the eunuch. They were having sweet fellowship. I just can't imagine what that fellowship would be like. We'd just done a killer Bible study. The response was, I baptized you. Let's hang out and talk now. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to walk with Christ? And the Spirit comes and snatches him away. Philip, I'm not done with you. you got other things to do. And that's maybe what it has to be sometimes because we do love fellowship, and we should and we, we will. We will have fellowship. But sometimes it's got to end. Somebody gets sent someplace else. And so Philip is snatched away. He's stolen from the Ethiopian, but the Ethiopian went on rejoicing. The good news to the Ethiopian wasn't just, hmm, fascinating point. It caused joy to overflow in his heart. It overwhelmed him that this good news was his. You mean, I'm going to be in the temple. I'm going to have my name in the temple. I'm part of this thing. I thought I was cut off forever. I thought I was excluded forever. I'd always watch from a distance. Now I'm with it. I'm right there in the middle of it. What great news. He went on rejoicing. It affected him deeply. Irenaeus wrote in the second century, so not too far after this happened, second century, Irenaeus wrote that um, this Ethiopian became a missionary to his people. The, the Ethiopian Coptic church is one of the oldest churches in Africa. Have you thought about that? Africa has had the gospel longer than America has. Africa has had the gospel longer than Europe has. Africa has had the gospel for since the beginning, practically. And it's because God saved one man, because God said, that's the man I want to save. Philip, go talk to him. Philip, go stand in the cart with him. He prompted the man, open up a scroll and start reading. Just, it was pure luck. Just happened to be Isaiah 53, right? Because, you know, just happenstance. God had conspired all of these things to save this Ethiopian so that he could bring the gospel to Africa. And he did. He brought the gospel to Africa. He went on rejoicing. So what are we supposed to do with this? Any, I don't think any of us are ethnically Ethiopian. Um, we're not going to take the gospel to Africa. That's, that's a done deal. So what does this have to do with us? Well, I want to go back to how Luke put this together. He drew two disparate stories, two very different stories. He brought them together, and he stands them right next to each other. Simon Magnus and the eunuch are standing right next to each other. So let's compare and contrast these two. Both men are rich and powerful, right? The Ethiopian is the treasurer for a kingdom. And Simon Magnus wowed all of Samaria. He had magic tricks that just blew people away. So he was very powerful. He's very influential in Samaria. Both men are rich and powerful. Both have some familiarity with Judaism, right? Simon Magnus is a Samaritan. Their Judaism is mixed with native religions and weirdness, but they still basically have the same kind of history. They can kind of look and say, well, Jacob dug this well, and, and Abraham gave this to them. And so they have kind of at least a passing familiarity with Judaism. The Ethiopian eunuch went to Jerusalem to worship. The Holy Spirit figures prominently in both of their experiences, doesn't he? In the case of Simon Magnus, when... 
Philip shows up in Samaria, he's preaching the gospel, and he's also doing signs and wonders. And after the Samaritans believed, the Holy Spirit didn't descend on them until the apostles showed up and put their hands on them. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit, in whatever way, is magnificently present. That was part of the conversion of Simon, or, well, the, the believing of Simon. And the Holy Spirit figures very prominently in this Ethiopian eunuchs because the Spirit told, Peter, or told Philip, you go talk to him. Both heard the message from Philip. So do you think that Simon Magnus got a different message than the Ethiopian eunuch? At its heart, it's the same thing. The same man's preaching the same thing. If you've ever seen Billy Graham, he has pretty much one message. That was pretty much all he preached. He did it in different ways, different groups, different times. But basically, he always came back to the Bible. He would hold up his Bible and say, the Bible says. And he would always point people back to Jesus Christ. Philip, I'm sure, does the same thing. He's got one message. He's got one thing to say. I'm going to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. So they both hear the message from Philip. Both believed. Both believed the message. Both were baptized. They both received that. And in the, the other thing that's really interesting how they compare is in both of them, the story ends abruptly and we never hear from them again. We don't hear any more about Simon Magnus. We don't hear any more about this Ethiopian. They're done. Poof. So Luke has got this kind of quirky way of writing these two people. We just get them dropped in there. So what's different between them? What, what's not the same? Simon Magnus, you remember the story, he, he saw that the apostles could lay their hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit. And his response is, I want to buy that. Give me that trick. How do you do that? He found Jesus useful. I will add Jesus to my collection of tricks. He found Jesus useful. The Ethiopian, the eunuch, found him beautiful. He went on rejoicing. He had heard this tremendous news, and he didn't find Jesus useful. He found him life-changing. He found him liberating. He found him as greater than anything else. Simon found personal power in the gospel. I can use that power that you guys have for my own ends. I already have these tricks. If I can add that trick to it, he's looking to the gospel to say, how does it enrich and empower me? The eunuch found life in the gospel. He had an everlasting name. He's not a dry twig. There would be life flowing from him even though he couldn't have children. So the gospel for Simon is power. The gospel for the eunuch is life. More than power. And then finally, Simon wanted something for himself. I'm going to add this to me. Whereas if history is correct, the eunuch gave his gift away. He went back to Ethiopia and he said, you people are not going to believe what I just learned about. And that joy that he had, he continued to share and spread and give and give and give. It wasn't about him. He had everything. What did he want? He went and he gave. So there's the differences. So how does this apply for us then? What are we, what are we to do with this? Well, first of all, um, we preach the I try to preach the gospel every week and be really clear it's about Jesus. It's, it's about Jesus. It's not enough for you to hear that message and go, hmm, yeah, nod your head, and then walk away and just go, yeah, that was nice. That's not sufficient. You have to love it. You have to hear that message, and it has to ring not just true in your head. It's got to ring true in your heart, where you go, not only is that a nice, interesting message that I'm very fond of, or that, that I, I have a warm feeling about, I love that message. 
I love the fact that Jesus was the suffering servant who took my sins. He bore my iniquities. I love that. I don't have to bear my iniquities anymore. I don't, when next time I sin, I don't have to just wallow in self-pity and, and self-hatred. I can look to my Savior and say, Lord, don't let me do that again. Thank you for taking that burden from me. So it's not enough to just go, hmm, you have to love it. It has to sink into your heart. That's the difference between Simon Magnus and the eunuch, is it sank into the eunuch's heart. You need to rejoice. You need to rejoice. It can't just sit there and do nothing in your heart. It should stir your emotions. Not every time. Sometimes you read, you know, you might read a gospel and, and it might just fall flat. But is that a pattern in your life where you, you're excited about this idea that Jesus saved me from my sins? Because if not, you might be in danger of being Simon Magnus and saying, well, I've added Jesus to my already busy schedule. That's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to be because you think you've got him and you don't because you don't delight in him. And then you need to learn to trust in nothing else. We sang it in, um, in the hymn, on Christ, my, um, on, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Not on Christ the solid rock I add to my life. I stand on him. All other ground is sinking sand. If I put my trust in any other place, I'm sunk. That is... How you need to respond to this is the difference between Simon and, and the eunuch was Simon said, I can take a little bit of that and add to it. The eunuch said, I'm not going to trust anything else. There's only one place this promise of me being in the temple is ever going to be fulfilled, and that's in Jesus Christ. So when you think about uh, when I, the, the classic question, when I die and I go to heaven, and God says to me, why should I let you in my heaven? What's your answer? I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I've done some wrong, but you know, I did some good stuff too. Look at all these good things I've done. I think the best answer is to lean around God and point at Jesus standing beside the throne and say, because I'm with him. He's my only hope. That's the only reason I'm going to get in. I'm with him. And if I'm not with him, then, then don't let me in. You have no reason. Absolutely no grounds to let me in. The problem is we tend to think that good deeds and bad deeds weigh exactly the same thing. So if you stack them up in a scale, as long as I got more good, the, the scale will tip to I get in. The, the reality is your good deeds are like spider webs. They're not inconsequential, but they're not enough to outweigh your bad. Your sin will hang before God, before the throne of God forever. So you don't need spider webs in that other scale. You need Jesus in that scale because he's the one. That's the difference. Will you trust in anything except for Jesus Christ? If you are, even subconsciously, even if a little bit here and there, you need to worry about that and pray about that and ask the Holy Spirit, since he's the one who did this, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you change my heart? Would you change my mind? Would you convince me that Jesus really is enough for this? that I don't have to? So how do you get your heart there? It's not enough for me to stand here and berate you and tell you you got to do that. If that was it, boy, you'd be set. We could just end church right now and never come back together again, and we're set. The human heart wanders. There's times when we're stronger in that and times when we're weaker in it. So what do you do to shore that up? How do you work on that? Well, what did the Ethiopian eunuch do? What was he doing when Philip came upon him? He was reading the scriptures. And what was he reading in the scriptures about? 
Jesus Christ. So the first place to go to strengthen, to, to harden your heart, to, to make it stay on the beauty of the gospel is to read your scriptures and to read in them looking for where is Jesus here? What does this tell me about who Jesus is? How do I learn more about Jesus? Because that's what will train your heart to love him more, the more you see of him. 1 Peter 1.3, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So when we know more about him, it's not like we just get an accumulation of facts. It's training our hearts to delight in those things because once you start grabbing them, they're huge and they're beautiful and they're amazing. Why would God do this for me? Why would the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, who reigned in glory forever and ever, take on the form of a servant? He shouldn't be serving. Don't wash my feet, Lord. That kind of thing, when it sinks into your heart and it captures your imagination, it will change your attitude towards those things. So know the scriptures. And when you're reading through the scriptures, hear his wonderful promises, not just to those in positions of power and authority, his promises to the poor, the marginalized, to the eunuchs, to the foreigners, to those who are excluded, because that's where God's reaching. He goes all the way down to the bottom of the heap. And that's who he's going after. Listen for those promises. Those promises are for you. We're wretched sinners. That's what we sang in, in uh, Amazing Grace. Those promises are for you. Hang on to those promises. And then remember who's really super active in both of these stories? The Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your life. This is not a mere mental exercise. It is a mental exercise. There are mental things you must do. But it's not only a mental exercise. The other half of the equation that you will blow if you don't get it is this is a spiritual exercise. This is something that happens not just in your mind, but in your soul. And so pray, Holy Spirit, would you open my mind? Would you open my heart? Would you open myself to your word so that I might hear and see Jesus? See, the end of this is, remember I said this is the disciple. Now we've made a disciple. And what do disciples do? Do disciples add to Disciples go, oh, I like this teacher and this teacher and this teacher. Are you a disciple of any of them? You're, you're picking and choosing. What a disciple does is says, I need to learn from my master. What he says is right. I've seen how he works. I've seen what he does. That's what I want to do. So to become a disciple is not to remain in charge by adding, but to follow the master to say his way is the right way. So when we say this, this eunuch has now become a disciple, and he's a disciple who goes on to Ethiopia and makes more disciples. What he said is, Jesus, your way is the right way. I'm submitting to that. It's better. And that's why you need to hear the promises. That's why you need to read the scriptures. That's why you need the spirit to open your mind and your heart is because you need to trust those things are the right things. That's what Jesus has told me. That's the way I go forward. So this is how you make disciples. This is how disciples follow after. And, and in the prayer that we prayed, I, I love Ramey picked that out. That was the perfect prayer. He says that we are not terrified as we draw near, but we're drawn near with love. We're drawn near to him with love, not doctrine, not mere statements of facts. The statement of facts are irreplaceable. You can't do it without them. But what will draw you is not the truth of the statement, but the beauty of the statement, because it's true. So we are drawn near to Jesus with love. 
The Holy Spirit sheds God's love abroad in our heart. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's all wrapped around love and, and, and the heart. Simon missed it. The eunuch got it. Let's pray that we get it as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving an outcast, even a powerful, rich, important outcast, but someone who was, who was excluded, who was, would ever be on the outside of that. He couldn't buy his way into the temple, not in your eyes. Lord, thank you for saving him. And thank you for saving us because we can't buy our way in either. We're not rich enough. We're not powerful enough. But Lord, we look at our Savior standing at the right hand of the glory of God in heaven. And we say, Lord, we're with him. Father, would you make that beautiful to us? Holy Spirit, would you open your scriptures, open the word that you inspired to make it beautiful to us, to captivate not just our minds, at least our minds, but also our, our, our emotions and our imagination. Lord Jesus, show us who you are. We see now in a glass dimly, but we're looking forward to that day when we see clearly. In the meantime, help us to see more sharply every day. We ask these things in Christ's name for his church and because of his glory. Amen.